Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Now that we are on the other side of the 2016 presidential election and other elections, this is a special edition of Faith and Family, where I would like to give to you three of my post-election reflections for our new political environment. And here's the three areas we hope to cover today. First, what you can do now for pro-life. Two, what you can do for your family and other families in America. And then three, what you can do for our hurting veterans. And just so you know, a little later this week is Veterans Day. So we got a lot on our plate today. Let's go. To the surprise of many, Donald Trump has been elected to serve as the 45th president of the United States. Why not send him a little note of congratulations and urge him to keep his promise to appoint strict constitutionalists? That is, people, jurists who will interpret the Constitution in light of the meaning the framers of the Constitution intended. In other words, let's have some pro-life Supreme Court justices. And while you're doing that, remember to send a congratulations to your senators because they are going to be the ones devoting the approval of the presidential appointment of Supreme Court justices. Now, I didn't need to really mention a whole lot of that because for a lot of Christians who think pro-life is really important when it comes to voting, uh, they know this strategy of trying to elect a Republican president who will in turn appoint pro-life judges and who will then in turn overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, I have some sobering news for you this morning, and it's realistic news. I care very deeply about pro-life, and so I'm just going to give it to you straight. Electing presidents to appoint pro-life judges, and I mean the strategy basically been electing Republican presidents to appoint pro-life judges, that strategy has not worked very well over the past 43 years. Now, I don't want to be a pessimist, say, you know, this strategy isn't going to work this time. I just am saying this has been 43 years of a strategy that has rather consistently failed. For instance, it was a Republican president who appointed Harry Blackman, the author of Roe versus Wade. It was a Democratic president who appointed Byron White, who wrote the dissent to Roe versus Wade. This is pretty important. And your host is probably the only host on Catholic media who has at some point in his or her life been involved full time in pro-life political work, strictly limited to the judiciary. In other words, I spent a year and a half of my life targeting the pro-abortion Florida Supreme Court justices who every six years the Florida citizens get the vote on their Supreme Court justices. And if you remember in the Bush versus Gore race, 
the whole presidential election ended up in that court. Nonetheless, the judges are a very important role, I guess you would say, in our culture because all of these key decisions on life, uh, Roe versus Wade, now with same-sex marriage, this wasn't voted in. For instance, in my state, South Carolina, it overturned laws. And now we have uh, transgender questions and transgender bathroom questions headed to the U.S. Supreme Court as I speak. Um, I was involved when I was involved in the pro-life judicial political work. Uh, I got news uh, handed down very quietly uh, through certain channels from a Republican presidential administration saying, vote for this guy from New Hampshire, uh, this Judge Souter. He, he's our man. And he turned out to be a pro-life turncoat. So I'm just saying, for 43 years, the presidential appointments for the Supreme Court for overturning Roe versus Wade hasn't worked. B, a second way that pro-lifers attempt to overturn Roe versus Wade is through constitutional amendments. I'm just going to tell you, constitutional amendments are extremely difficult to get passed. And just going to tell you the reality here. They're very frequently used for political posturing. For people who actually intend to do nothing, write a constitutional amendment. Pro-lifers get just ecstatic and it goes nowhere. I'm just saying that's a very difficult way to overturn Roe versus Wade. I think, okay, gee, this, this isn't a very happy broadcast, you know. We have a Republican president coming into office, and you're saying, well, it's questionable if that strategy will work, appointing pro-life justices. It's very questionable if the constitutional amendment route will work. So what will work? Here it is. As Americans, our Constitution gives our Congress the ability to strip the Supreme Court of what is called appellate jurisdiction. It's called stripper legislation, and it's not the racy kind of uh, stripping. It means removing authority from the Supreme Court to decide certain questions. Now, I've done broadcast on this, and, uh, you know, people think, where'd you get this? I'm just let you know, stripper legislation has been advocated by folks like the late Phyllis Schlafly in her book, The Supremacist. Uh, it's been highlighted in Chronicles magazine. Uh, Pat Buchanan has supported it, and especially someone who probably many of you never, ever heard of, but Professor William Quirk, Q-U-I-R-K. And you want to keep in mind that uh, Professor Quirk's name. And if you have any questions, because I'm going to recommend his book in a minute, you can always write askthehost at gmail.com, and we can give you information regarding something mentioned on a broadcast. But I'm going to turn to the United States Constitution, Article 3, Section 2, and it talks about all cases that affect ambassadors or cases between the individual states the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction. 
But then Article 3, Section 2, goes on to say, in all the other cases, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. In other words, the Constitution gives the Congress great power over the court. You see, in our Constitution, although kids aren't taught this anymore, the Congress is really supreme. They're the ones, because they're directly accountable to the people that have this great authority. And the Congress has the ability to limit the Supreme Court from even hearing or deciding certain cases. All it takes is a majority vote from a simple law passed by Congress that has the president's signature. Then that case goes straight back to the states to be decided. Now, as of this morning, there is a majority in Congress that says it's pro-life and pro-family, and we have a president who says the same, so stripper legislation could be introduced, passed on a simple bill, signed by the President of the United States, and after last night's election, this very real possibility that the Supreme Court loses its ability to hear certain cases. And there's one on the way to it, this transgender thing. So I think it's time to put on the heat, not just say, uh, you know, let the process work. No, uh, we start bringing up the topic because some of our congressmen may not even be aware of its authority to do these things. And just kind of in a realistic sense, a lot of them don't have a backbone. And so they have to feel the heat in order to do the right thing. If you would like to learn about stripping legislation the book I recommend is by Professor William Quirk, Q-U-I-R-K, and it's entitled Courts and Congress, America's Unwritten Constitution. Professor Quirk is a retired law professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and I found uh, this morning for $2.75, you can get a very good condition used copy on Amazon. Why not buy up all those used copies, uh, have one for yourself. Any local, state, or national pro-life leader should be aware of this strategy, and many are not. And when you go to a town hall meeting and there's only two or three dozen people there, your congressman's home and wants to get in touch with his local citizens, make sure you raise a public question about it in a town hall meeting, and then give Professor Quirk's book to him. We really need to start moving on this because this is one of the few things we can do to keep the Supreme Court from destroying the United States of America. All right, that was quick, but that was important. Uh, what you can do in our new political environment for pro-life particularly on the political end. But now I also promised it to address what you and your family can do for America. Now, 
this has to be very clear in our minds, particularly following the euphoria, uh, perhaps, of pro-life sweeping the national elections. And here it is. Culture has to change before there's any meaningful and lasting political change. Culture comes first. And without culture changing, the whole drift of our country will continue to go in the direction that has concerned so many Christians. Elections don't change culture. Thankfully, they might give us some needed time to change culture, but, but elections don't change culture. So you ask the question, what does change culture? And it's this, the family. The family, quoting St. John Paul II, the future of the world and the church passes through the family. In other words, the entire future of our church, of our culture, of our political system, the whole moral environment in which we live passes through the family. That's where the future is. Let me read to you the marching orders that uh, I received for the Family Life Center and for Faith and Family Radio that I heard St. John Paul II give on November 1991 at the first International Pro-Life Summit sponsored by the Pontifical Council for the Family. Here's what he said. The family is the sanctuary of life. The family is where the culture of life develops. The Pope said that the culture of death must be changed. And then he said, quote, the first essential structure capable of doing this is definitely the family. The family must become the center of every social political activity, unquote. Just remember, to change the moral climate in America, culture has to change. And even for political changes to have any lasting and meaningful effect, culture has to change. And according to the Pope of the family, St. John Paul II, the family is the place where culture develops. It's the place to focus. It's the place where Every social and political activity needs to begin because if you try to do something apart from that, you will fail. And let me just put it in a nutshell because there's many questions facing Catholics at this moment. To support Catholic family life, this is very simple. We need lots more of St. John Paul II and a lot less of Cardinal Casper's radical proposals. If we do those two things, the Catholic family in America will thrive because he has brought forth a timeless Catholic teaching. I'm talking about St. John Paul II, the Pope of the family. He has put his finger on how to change the world fundamentally and how to change culture fundamentally and how to create a culture of life fundamentally, and it all focuses on the family. So we are really going to have to focus on the sanctity of marriage and family life along with the sanctity of life because these are all connected. There's no shortcuts. 
And, you know, easy annulments or communion for those living in adultery will not build a culture of life. We have to help marriages survive in our divorce-prone culture. They need assistance. Um, For instance, one of the things I share at our men's conferences, uh, guys who are thinking of uh, leaving their wives and their children and just moving out, I said, do you know if you're in a very unhappy marital situation, that if you simply stick it out, that the probabilities and the statistics show that no matter what you do, let's say you go to a good counselor or maybe you go to your parish priest or maybe you meet with friends or maybe you go to retrovi, whatever, or do nothing. The probability is is that after five years, three quarters of those marriages will be transformed from very unhappy to very happy. This needs to be said about every other week in every Catholic parish in the United States, along with some uh, local phone numbers and some web links where they can get some help. We need to provide the practical help to helping love thrive in existing families, not just say, come see me after your divorce and we'll help you with an easy annulment. No, we need to help these families stay together. And by doing so, according to St. John Paul II, we are building a culture of life, and this is so incredibly important. St. John Paul II also put his finger on the necessity to really focus on young couples, helping them in their first few years of marriage. And, you know, just so you know, one of the reasons this is now a 30-minute broadcast, Faith and Family, instead of an hour broadcast, is what it was for years— is that I was very concerned to basically work harder to take the same message and package it into a shorter format that's more uh, agreeable with the busy lifestyles of today's young families. I did it for the young families. That was a very concrete act, a, a change that I made in my broadcasting life that I've been doing for years. Why? Because, according to St. John Paul II, that has to be a focus. We have to take specific actions to help young families. And then, as most parents know who have children in the relationship and courtship and premarital years, what a struggle it is today, even for children who have had the advantages of having faithful Catholic parents— who have had the advantage of Catholic schooling or homeschooling, when they wander off uh, on their own to college or after college, rather than doing it God's way, they're cohabiting by the tens of thousands and breaking the hearts of parents. And (laughs) we don't have to just sweep this under the carpet, and we don't have to just condemn these young people. as this broadcast has tried to show, these young people are scared. They're scared by the breakup of marriages in the modern world. And we have to give them very concrete ways to determine how to have a strong, lasting, loving marriage without falling to the deceptions of cohabitation. This is some of the things that we can be doing to build up the sanctuary of life and that's the family. And that starts with the marriage covenant, both before, the years immediately after that, 
assisting parents with children at, in the home, and even encouraging grandparents to be involved in the whole process. This is where the culture of life develops. And do we really put our time, our talents, and our treasures in this direction? Or do we send off checks every four years and hope and pull a ballot and hope that alone will do it? That alone will not do it. That may give us some time to do the real work of changing culture through the family. Now, there's one last thing I promised today, and this is I'm moving right along because there's a number of things that uh, I just feel in this political environment we need to talk about. And the third thing I wanted to mention is what you can do for our hurting veterans. Do you know what I found most remarkable about President-elect Trump's acceptance speech last night? (laughs) Guess. And I don't think you're going to guess what it is. What really struck me was that he went out of his way to thank his Secret Service agents for their service in keeping him safe. And he thanked the New York police officers for doing the same. Now, whatever you may think of Donald Trump, I believe we can agree that he's a man who will do all he can to treat those protecting all of us with respect and care. And I believe he has a certain spot in his mind and heart to provide needed assistance to our hurting military veterans. And I think he's going to do his best on behalf, and I hope he brings all his business expertise to bear on some of the scandalous non-treatment our veterans are receiving. Now, I'm just going to just get on my little soapbox here for a moment. Um, I work hard for faith and family. So here are two things that uh, from Steve's soapbox that I believe everyone listening to me should agree with. And no matter how you may think about a particular war conflict, whether you're for it or against it, there are two things our country should never do. Number one is we should never, ever leave behind a single American serviceman as a prisoner of war. Never. Two, we should never neglect to provide medical and psychological care for returning combat veterans. Again, no matter how you feel about pro or con about a particular war or military conflict, our veterans deserve care, including psychological care. And our veterans commit one-fifth of all the suicides in America. And in a recent year, the U.S. lost more active duty soldiers to suicide than to combat in Afghanistan. That's scandalous. And here's how I suggest you can help. I got this from an article in a in an evangelical magazine called Christianity Today. It was the June 2015 uh, issue. And if you have trouble finding this issue and the article entitled Formed by War, again, just send an email to askthehost at gmail.com, and we'll send you a link to this article. This article talks about the career of a young psychiatrist who, during his medical school training, kind of awakened to 
some theological concepts that impact the human person so deeply. So he kind of suspended his medical training, and he obtained a degree from Duke Divinity School in theology, and then went back, finished his medical degree in psychiatric training, and then worked with U.S. veterans. And one thing he discovered in working with those who had what's called post-traumatic stress disorder, he discovered that they didn't frequently talk about fear, which caused the post-traumatic stress. They talked about right and wrong. They talked about guilt and shame stemming from actions in uncontrollable and morally confusing situations involved in modern combat. And they were struggling with this. Now, this young psychiatrist is having great effect realizing that post-traumatic stress can often involve tremendous amounts of guilt and shame. And there is no one on this planet that's better in dealing with guilt and shame than the Catholic Church in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Confession is the ultimate guilt reliever. And, you know, my past, I was a Protestant pastor. And a lot of pastoral counseling in evangelical Protestant circles, it's involved with good people who end up doing some things that bother them terribly. And yes, they confess it to Jesus and feel better, and then all of a sudden it comes back at them. So they confess it again, and it kind of goes away for a while, and then it comes back at them. And it's just amazing to me now as a Catholic looking back and thinking, what five minutes in a Catholic confessional could do for something so deep, so harmful, and so lasting. And here's how you, as an individual, can help veterans. You know, most of us probably know someone in our extended family or a neighbor or maybe a neighbor who's struggling with a spouse returning from combat situations. You know, just have a cup of coffee and let them know about the guilt-relieving power of the sacrament of confession. I'm Steve Wood, your host. You've been listening to my post-election reflections. This is episode 143 of Faith and Family, and I'd like to depart saying, may God bless you, your family, and the United States of America. and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.